Hello again, and thank you for joining me on this fifth and penultimate episode of my podcast, where I will try to discuss about the role of art, literature, and humor in relieving cancer-related distress and addressing the impact of trauma, PTSD, on the life of people embarked in the oncological journey. When we started studying psycho-oncology, I was naturally attracted to the subject that interests me the most, namely trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. The matching of the two subjects came natural, of course, coming in close contact with or having a direct experience with cancer, being often described as traumatic event, the treatment unfortunately being for many an ongoing process of traumatization, and cancer survivors carrying the weight of the diagnosis throughout their lifetime. Relying on my prior findings and searches about trauma, PTSD and its treatment, I often found myself asking if besides the many maladaptive coping mechanisms we see and hear about, heavy alcohol, uh, drug consumption, isolation, aggression, etc., I can find good examples of resilience, post-traumatic growth, and behaviors, patterns, coping tools, which foster development and healing. My first thought was, of course, art therapy and literature, again often mentioned by doctors, medical personnel, psychologists dealing either with cancer patients or with people suffering from PTSD, or even both. Bessel van der Kolk, who I find to be uh, the rock star of trauma research, describes the healing, growth-inducing powers of art therapy in traumatized patients, and also writes about the potential of therapeutic writing or literature in aiding the reframing of the traumatic event and clearing the path to healing from trauma. His book, The Body Keeps the Score, is one of my favorite readings about trauma and healing, and I find that there are relevant information to be considered in the context of psycho-oncological studies as well. In a video interview, Agnes Rishko, a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and training analyst of the Hungarian Psychoanalytical Society, who has an over 30 years of experience at the National Institute of Oncology, showed viewers artworks of an oncological patient created as a bridge to be built through the cancer journey to others, the connection. And we could also read, thanks to her, some truly emotional poetry written by a Hungarian young oncology patient, which showed us the incredible strength some find in opening their healing, suffering process to the world. Thanks to our professor, Chabadeki, I then discovered Ellen Poltz, the great personality of the Hungarian thanatology, the founder of the Hungarian hospice movement, who was an incredibly productive writer and documented not only his dying husband's process, but also her own. Her book, Nem Trapulok Tovább, or in a free translation, I will go no further, is actually a dictated chronicle of her total physical collapse. But it is giving you the opportunity to have a conversation throughout this process with her truly amazing, sizzling mind. Another great reading in this subject, of course, is Susan Zontag's Illness and the, and the Metaphor, which opens our eyes to the strain of metaphorical thinking about cancer and chronic illness in general, but gives us much more than that. 
it is a personal story about coming to terms with what is culturally considered a death sentence. In this sense, John Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking or Blue Nights are again two books about grief, illness and death, which explain our human condition of being narrative creatures. As she says, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. The narrative's role in failing to plan for misfortune and succeeding in living through it and takes us on the writer's own therapeutical journey about healing from trauma and accepting death. In my extended search for literature about and by authors dealing with cancer, I found a book with the title Cancer, a Personal Challenge, edited by Bob Ridge, which begins with a poem written by a terminally ill girl in a New York hospital. Slow Dance. Have you ever watched kids on a merry-go-round or listened to the rain slapping on the ground? Ever followed a butterfly's erratic flight or gazed at the sun into the fading night? You'd better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Do you run through each day on the fly? When you ask, how are you? Do you hear the reply? When the day is done, do you lie in your bed with the next hundred chores running through your head? You'd better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Ever told your child we'll do it tomorrow and in your haste not see his sorrow? Ever lost touch, let a good friendship die because you never had time to call and say hi? You'd better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short, the music won't last. When you run so fast to get somewhere, you miss half the fun of getting there. When you worry and hurry through your day, it's like an unopened gift thrown away. Life is not a race, do take it slower. Hear the music before the song is over. This book is impressive. Uh, it also has a chapter which uh, talks about art therapy's role in uh, healing from cancer trauma. This poem, of course, takes me back also to Paul's Ellen, about who Janusz Pilling said in his uh, commemorative speech to her. She, who dealt with death on a daily basis, often told us that those who learn how to die, in fact, learn how to live. Those who care for the dying are made to realize how good it is to live. Ellen learned from the dying and the mourners how to live. In this line of thought, I would like also to mention Esther Hazi-Peter's Pancreas Diary and read a few lines from this last work of this great author written in 2016, the year of his death, translated by Judith Sholoshi. It is actually a journal of the writer's relationship with his diseased organ, the pancreas, questioning whether it is a separate entity with a will of its own. Cancer, that's the suitable first word, though nobody said it right away, not right off. On the other hand, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the doctors avoided it. A sign, let's call it a sign, though I'd never thought that it was a sign of anything. 
The first sign appeared a month ago. I forgot the one in autumn. On May 2nd, I wrote in my notebook. Belly, slight fever, in a bed all day. This is why I'm saying that this is not a diary. It's just a reminder. A diary doesn't remind. It describes. Another excerpt. Let me read it. As if I were guilty, that's the pressure I feel in my heart and in my stomach. In which case, is this here the tribunal? Feels pretty flat. And the shades of Kafka don't make it any better. Never mind. What you get is what you get. I'm sitting in the overcrowded corridor with the other condemned. Thinking of the cleansing fire. Because of the waiting, I bet. It's not, my, it's not my fault, I feel like saying to the mourners, the famous sentence from Kami, in response to which, of course, they could come back with the other. You're always just a bit at fault. We, each of us, have just one mother. This, for instance, I already know. But that we have just one life, this I still don't know. Or else I can't grasp its significance. Or let's ignore these things. Let's stick with Cancer equals body, and talk only about that, and maybe a bit about God. But no, that's arrogant. I've done some thinking about the death of others, my fathers, my mothers, but my own, nothing, I think. Always this, I think. I think it never even occurred to me that I might die. Not that I thought I wouldn't die, just that the eventuality of my own death didn't faze me. It seems that now this eventuality has come closer, but it hasn't touched me even so. Sometimes I can't help thinking I swear that I am a true believer there in God's hand, and though I don't expect to meet my Heavenly Father face to face, yet I seem to find the same as this. And this, this early version, I thought, I realize it's not trendy, I consider good. To enter the murky space between Marai and an unendowed rural parish priest, it is good to be alive. All these exper- excerpts, uh, of course, bring us to the use and value of humor as a form of therapy, as Esterhazy uh, calls his pancreas cancer actually sugar plum. We all know and accept that humor is a way of forming bonds between people, nurturing the sense of sharing and belonging to something. Moreover, humor decreases interpersonal distances and reduces levels of fear. The studied literature supports the use of humor as a therapeutic intervention. The ability to apply and comprehend humor is associated with coping skills and is particularly relevant to people with chronic or terminal illness. Whether or not the application of humor is therapeutic, of course, will depend on the nature of the communication and the relationship established between medical personnel and patient. Humor can also have lateral relationships between professionals and patients' relatives and can lead the patient to recognize medical professionals as being closer, as opposed to a distant, out-of-reach, paternalistic figure about which we earlier discussed and which can lead to a traumatizing communication and ongoing traumatization about the illness. 
Humor also generates confidence and can both strengthen and consolidate the therapeutic relationship and brings benefits to any type of communication. As we could directly see in our webinars and online meetings with professionals, a warm voice, a simple smile is seen as a gesture of empathy, just like happiness, optimism and good humor. It allows professionals to listen in on hidden messages on death and rec reconciliation and might be just the best means of communication when raising difficult subjects and as a conduit to discuss death with patients. It makes it easier to give information and tell the truth and transmit deeper messages. In the next and last episode of my podcast, we will see how the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the life of oncological patients as everyone got deprived of the mentioned warm smile and reassuring physical contact. Thank you for listening.